In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. It may not be very comfortable to remember this feeling, but I'm going to ask it of you anyway. Try to recall exactly how you felt in the early days of reporting on COVID-19. We didn't know then, really, just how worried we should be. We had heard some things about this new virus, but for most of us, it was still half a world away, and there was an awful lot that nobody knew. There were things that we were yet to find out about how it spread, about its severity, about who was most at risk. We just didn't know. And now, of course, we all know more than most of us ever imagined we'd know about one particular virus. And so naturally, COVID has given us something new to try and figure out, and it comes with some urgency. Health officials have identified a new variant for the coronavirus in Southeast England, and that's causing considerable consternation. There's no evidence that it causes more severe illness or higher mortality, but it does appear to be passed on significantly more easily. A new coronavirus variant first detected in the United Kingdom continues to travel across the world with Canada and France becoming the latest in a growing list of countries to have confirmed cases of the fast-spreading strain. The variant of COVID-19 that is wreaking havoc in the UK is already on Canadian soil and we are once again trying to wrap our heads around the strengths and weaknesses of this thing. Trying to figure out how it's different from the version that already has our healthcare system near capacity and what this variant has the potential to do if it isn't stopped. At least we understand now, in a way that most of us didn't at this time last year, how urgent this is, how dangerous this could be if we don't figure it out and quickly. So what do we know about this variant? What don't we know? How precarious is our situation in Canada? And is there a plan that we could use even this late in the game to stop this virus now and help us make it through to spring? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Dr. David Fisman is an epidemiologist, a professor at the Dalla School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. He's our first call when something scary appears around COVID. Hello, David. Hello. It's, it's good to be here. I want to start by repeating a version of a question that I asked you, I guess, close to this time a year ago. Uh, but this time about the new COVID variant that has been found in the UK and is now being found in Canada and elsewhere. And my short question is first, how worried should we be about this? You know, you know, I, th- I think it's, um, it's a matter of uh, being cautious, potentially planning for the worst, hoping for the best. We don't really know 
how widespread this uh, new strain is uh, is going to be. It it probably has already escaped from the UK. We know we've got a few uh, instances of of infection with it. it's called the B one one seven lineage, and we've got a few of those identified here in Canada. The data from the UK are concerning. They they suggest that it may be a strain of virus that's better better adapted to transmission in humans. That it's got a um, a mutation that allows it to to bind to human cells better to something called the ACE receptor. And what you see in the UK data is that this strain sort of appeared in September and is overrunning the other other strains that have been circulating in the UK and is sort of outpacing them, which suggests by itself that it may well be fitter, you know, better adapted to infect human beings. You know, it's always hard with a with with a, a new variant of a virus. Viruses mutate all the time, so so there's lots of different strains of this thing. Um, if you have a big outbreak that just happens to be caused by one particular strain of virus, if you just look at that in isolation, it's going to look like that virus is more infectious and more uh, fit and transmits better because it you know it becomes overrepresented as a result of having caused a big outbreak. So, so, you know, you can be misled by things like that. Say, you know, you have a super spreader event, the strain that was associated with that super spreader event is going to look more infectious because lots of people suddenly have it, even if it, it's exactly the same transmissibility as, um, as other strains. But what you see with this B117 variant is it started, it seems, in southern, southern England, and you can see it sort of moving through the country, and wherever it goes, it's sort of catching up with and then surpassing existing strains um, in those regions and sort of leaving them behind. To what extent that's driven this third wave of infection that they're now seeing in the UK is still unclear, but that's a plausible mechanism for this, that you know you have a new, more fit variant that is just out-competing the old virus. And so it's causing a higher fraction of infections. So you, you know, it looks as though this is this is a fitter fitter virus, and and that's to be expected over time, right? Because it's it's important to remember this virus is an animal virus. SARS two is a, you know probably a bat virus that's moved into a new species, has moved into human beings, and as it passages through millions and millions of people, you know we're up at about eighty five million. I, I counted infections worldwide, so we're probably getting close to something like one and a half or two billion infections worldwide. With with all of those passages, you know, and 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 some mutation of the virus, the the better adapted viruses are going to get selected out. So something like this is sort of expected over time that it becomes a better fit for our species. Right. Um, if that is the case here, then you know the obvious questions are: Okay, it's fitter. Is it also better at killing people? You know, is it more virulent? And in general, the direction of something like that would actually be the opposite. You you would um, expect that part of becoming a more successful virus doesn't just involve being better at infecting people, but also involves you know you being less likely to make people severely ill. Uh, so that they can be isolated and you know prevent onward infection and less likely to kill people because um, you know if you kill someone they can't do any infecting 
adaptation is probably over time going to go in the direction of making the, the pathogen less virulent. We just don't have enough data yet to know whether or not that's the case. It doesn't, it doesn't right now look as though this is either better or worse than the, the prior strains of virus in terms of killing people. And then the other very important question right now is, um, is the virus mutated enough that the vaccines that we're starting to get into people's arms might not be um, effective? I mean, that's the scary thing that people are concerned about. The best data that we have at the moment suggests that no, neither this variant nor there's there's something called 501v2, which has emerged in South Africa and also seems to be more infectious, that neither of these are different enough that we would expect the vaccine not to be effective. What this does tell us, though, is, you know, we're sort of just barely holding it together in Ontario at the moment because um, the hospital ICUs are now full. So our, you know, our first field hospital in Burlington, Ontario has opened its doors. Um, so we're, we're, we're really hanging on by our fingernails to this thing. The, the last point to make about the, this new variant and, and, you know, again, this, this is preliminary, but it, it, it's pretty convincing in the report from Imperial Colleges. It looks like it may actually, um, be predominantly a strain right now in the UK that's infecting younger people. That may just uh, reflect the fact that younger people have higher contact numbers than older people. Uh, they've been in schools. Uh, they've um, even without schools, um, we had more uh, more transmission of infection over the summer, for example, in Ontario and younger people. So you may be seeing a predominance of this strain in younger people just because that's where the action is in terms of a lot of the transmission. So that's where the, this new strain is able to amplify itself better. So it may yet percolate up into older people from those younger compartments. What kind of information will you be watching for uh, in the coming weeks in order to determine whether this thing is, is headed towards a worst-case scenario or um, you know, it, it is part of the natural evolution of this virus? Yeah. So, so, so big picture, you know, I think what to look for in Canada is can the folks who run our, 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 our laboratory system in Canada put together surveillance systems so that we can even track this? Because, you know, emergence in, in the UK, while it may have something special to do with the United Kingdom, it's also possible that variants like this are in other countries and it just happens that the United Kingdom has a particularly good um, public health laboratory system that does things like phylogenetic analysis and deep sequencing on viruses. And we don't do a lot of that in Canada. And as I say, I think the two real key questions are, you know, does the risk of death per infection change over time? And that's going to take a, a good long while. You know, deaths always lag in this disease. They always lag on infections. So it'll take us a while to find that out. And also, you know, are vaccines as effective against the new strain as the old strain? And that, again, you know, for, first we have to actually vaccinate people. As has, you know, been the case throughout the pandemic, we sort of need to do the best we can do with the information we have, kind of um, uh, 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 general principles in terms of how these diseases work, the precautionary principle, for example, acting rather than overthinking things. And hope we uh, we come out okay by 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 taking that approach because we're not going to have hard data on either of these elements for a while yet. Mm -hmm. 
In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. Well, in terms of that, how are we doing right now? And I don't mean that. I mean, I know, obviously, the numbers are not looking good. You mentioned a field hospital being opened. Uh, ICUs are full. All of those are bad signs. But we've also uh, been talking, and I believe me and you spoke uh, late summer, early fall, just talking about how tough this winter was going to be. And we've all anticipated a second wave and obviously we're in the thick of it. I guess my question is, is this the kind of tough winter we expected or is it worse than that? And and if so, maybe what are we doing wrong? What the situation we're in now is the situation we did not want to be in. I assume I can't say f- around and find out on your on your show. but it, it, I think we could make an exception for an epidemiologist. You know, I mean, it was is that sort of sort of situation. Do you really want to, you know, see how bad COVID can be? Well, you know, sort of fuck around and find out, and that's what we did. Huh. It was entirely predictable that we were going to have a big fall wave. Schools have emerged as an important amplifier, notwithstanding all the paradoxes associated with kids and transmission. The school schools themselves opening and closing. Closing schools, there's a good database now that when you open and close schools, that pushes COVID transmission up and down. And whether that's from the kids or whether that's from the adults being able to interact more in workplaces is unclear. It's it's clear that there's been a very different approach taken to this in northern Canada and the Atlantic provinces, where they've really, you know, stamped out clusters when they've come in. Uh, they've they've locked down when they've needed to. They've had great public health leadership and great, great public health messaging and you know the atlantic provinces in northern canada have been the equal of australia or new zealand or taiwan or japan right most of canada has not been that and so we've sort of tumbled into this sort of tragic predictable predicament where we have a very bad second wave of covid going on and even even <laughs> you know even as our ICUs overflow, even as we, you know, we're into freezer trucks in London, Ontario. There was a CBC report today because the morgues are full. You know, all of these horrific things that one would have said, well, we don't want that to happen. And that's why we have to be so good at, at controlling this pandemic. It's, you know, that's pretty much, it's pretty much come to pass. So this is, this is what we were talking about. You know, do, do we have a, a situation like the United States, some some U.S. states, where one or two people out of every every thousand are now dead. No, we don't have that in Canada. Um, but you know, I think I think one difficulty for Canadians has been um, <laughs> we're we're the next door neighbors of a very large country that has arguably one of the world's worst COVID responses under Donald Trump, and comparing ourselves to um, Trump's approach to COVID and saying, oh, we're doing pretty well, you know, that, that'd be like, I don't know, it'd be like me playing one-on-one with a 
two-year-old and saying, oh, <laughs> you know, I totally, I, I, I kicked the butt of that two-year-old in basketball. It, does, it doesn't actually mean, right, it doesn't mean I'm a good basketball player. It just means that I, you know, I'm comparing my, I'm making a ridiculous comparison. Um, so, so no, it's very sad. We obviously have, um, have a very aggressive disinformation campaign going on in Canada as well. Uh, Frank Graves, who, who runs Ecos Research, has pointed out that, you know, about 20% of Canadians at this point seem to have um, belief systems around COVID that, that, that are very heavily shaded by disinformation. You know, it's just the flu. It's a normal flu season. It's a conspiracy. They're all false positives, yeah. that kind of stuff. My my best guesstimate in terms of what we're faced to is we're going to be through a lot of the transmission by the end of March. That's not that far away. We're January now, February, March. Uh, based on how this is growing worldwide, based on the fact that we have vaccines going into arms, you've been able to see very steady growth for quite some time. Um, and, um, and, and we're likely to sort of hit that turning point after March which again puts us on exactly the same timeline as 1918 flu, where you know they had a fourth wave in the fall, but it was a mild fourth wave, and we didn't have vaccine as we do. In as much as deaths are lagged, right? I think most of the people who are going to die of this disease may well still be alive. You know, as they say, you know, predictions always hard, especially about the future. But I, th- I, I. I I think that's likely. I, 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 I think most of the folks this disease is going to kill are still alive at the time we're speaking. Um, and, th- and that's a terrible thing to, to, to contemplate. And it's all the worse because it didn't have to be this way. Canada, outside the Atlantic and the North, it, it, we're, we're having circles run around us in terms of disease control by Vietnam, by Rwanda, by Ethiopia, um, you know, by Australia and New Zealand, um, you know, by Japan. Right. This is not, not, not really a matter of, you know, they, they were wealthy enough to pay their way out of this. They were smart enough to, you know, get out of this. They had, they had resources and expertise that we didn't have. We have everything they have. Um, we, we, just, um, we just don't seem to have been able to follow science and follow common sense and be disciplined uh, outside of the Atlantic and North in Canada, as some of these other places have been. So that's really tragic. Is there a way to forget how we got here? Because uh, I'm sure a lot of people will write books on how we ended up here. But given given everything you've said, with the numbers climbing, uh, with misinformation out there in 20% of the populace, with politicians demonstrating bad judgment and and people just generally having fatigue about the regulations. Is there a way to put this genie back in the bottle um, if we wanted to devote all our resources to doing what Japan and New Zealand and other countries have done? Is it still possible from where we are talking now on January 5th? I think it probably is, but you know, you need leadership and you need leadership that sets an example, and you need leadership that's prepared to do things proactively, even though when you do things proactively, it's because it's not a disaster yet. You know, the, I mean, the, the aggressiveness with which Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Newfoundland have dealt with small case clusters, 
relative to the fairly lackadaisical attitude towards these things in Ontario, you, you know, they, they, their, their economies are open now. Our economy is heading into a bad patch. Uh, but you needed to actually have the will and the leadership and the insight to do that proactively before you were in a crisis. Uh, and people say, oh, well, you know, Justin Trudeau should have done this or, or, or what have you. I mean, health is a, health is a, um, a provincial matter in Canada. I, I know there are folks out there who think, you know, the feds should invoke the Emergency Powers Act. That, that's, that's, uh, that's politically fraud. Um, and, and I don't think it's unreasonable for the federal government to say, you know, provinces are in charge of health in Canada and we're backstopping you and helping you and giving you resources and giving you tools. So I, th- I think the buck does stop with the provincial government. And certainly here in Ontario, I think the provincial governments, unfortunately, has sort of bungled things. On a lighter note, um, <laughs> you know, I do think, I do think that we're heading into better times later on this spring. I do think getting vaccines into people's arms, we don't know this for sure. I think the kind of watch is Israel because they are vaccinating 100,000 a day and they're a small country. So if we see big time herd effects from COVID vaccines, they're using the Pfizer vaccine, we'll see them in Israel soon. And if we do see that, that'll be very encouraging. You know, we need to up our vaccine game in Ontario and in Canada generally. But that'll be very encouraging. Well, this is the last thing that I want to ask you about, um, which is I know there is a plan out there. I know it it doesn't have your name on it, but you also know um, some of the people who worked on it uh, called the Canadian Shield. And part of that involves uh, ramping up vaccines to kind of stem the tide of COVID. And, and maybe to truly end this on a hopeful note, could you just outline what that would look like and and what we'd go about doing today if we really wanted to to get a handle on this thing leaving politics out of it assuming leadership was buying into it and like okay let's go yeah at the end of the day the way infectious diseases transmit is via people interacting with other people infected individuals interacting with susceptible individuals we know from for example facebook mobility data or google workplace data we know that you know, the fall lockdowns have basically been mockdowns. We're back to very normal patterns of movement. So, you know, tools in the toolbox in terms of, um, of, of folks actually restricting access to workplaces, enforcing work from home for non-essential workers, potentially enforcing curfews as they've done in Europe and as they're apparently going to be doing in Quebec, getting a lot more muscular about... Um, about keeping people separate, restricting movement even between regions in Ontario. If you're serious about controlling this, you actually do need to <laughs> you actually do need to modify the degree to which uh, people in Ontario are interacting with one another. And if you know you say you don't interact with each other and they sort of flip you the bird and continue to do what they were doing, then you need to actually consequence that. So so no, I mean I think. I, I think that, that that is highly likely to be um, be effective, and that's what the Canadian Shield is advocating more than vaccination. They're actually saying, look, you know, doing a, a lockdown in, in the Canadian Shield model, uh, it's an economic model from Queens. They're saying, you know, let's do two-thirds of the intensity of what they did in Melbourne, Australia. Based on current growth in Canada, that would be enough over a six-week period 
to get us down to a point where we have a few enough cases that we can do test, trace, and isolate, and you know, be doing cluster busting with small numbers of cases. We've never really taken advantage of the fact that a lot of this is probably aerosol transmission, so there's a whole other tool basket we could be using if we acknowledge that. All of those tools would be incredibly helpful, and then vaccinating all the while, and the more we vaccinate you know, um, uh, the, the less dire our situation becomes and the more we accelerate getting to the end of this. In terms of long-term care, you know, we've got 70,000, 80,000 elderly folks in long-term, mostly elderly folks, not all elderly, in long-term care in Ontario. At 10,000 shots a day, that should be a week's work. We should be done vaccinating um, uh, long-term care in Ontario. We have more than enough vaccine doses and we have more than enough personnel to get that done and we haven't got that done so so that's very important because that's where a lot of the dying is coming from we could take that off the table we could have taken that off the table as an issue a couple of or, or already a couple of weeks ago and as we you know protect more and more and more older people the toll that this takes is going to become much 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 less so we could take a lot of this risk off the table by vaccinating more aggressively. Um, and that's something that we need to, to do in tandem with probably locking the province back down. Well, I hope we do something. And I hope the next time we talk, uh, it is in March and we are on the way out of this. Thank you for all your help understanding this stuff over the past year, David. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. And, and yeah, I look forward to seeing this through the rearview mirror too. Dr. David Fisman of the Dalla School of Public Health. That was the big story. For more from us and a lot more from David, if you go back through the archives, you can find us at thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can talk to us on Twitter, be polite, at thebigstoryfpn. You can write to us, again, politeness, please. The Big Story Podcast, all one word, all lowercase, at rci.rogers.com. And of course, you can find us everywhere you get your podcasts, Rate us, review us, only if you think we deserve five stars. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now.